When people say, I wish I was someone else, do they have a particular person in mind? Or are they just imagining an alternative version of themselves, a sort of a fantasy person? That is a question that is quite pertinent to this episode's story, which is Quarantine by Dorothy Tse. Astute listeners may have noticed that this is our first author who goes by an English name in their publications. She's a Hong Kong author. We've not done any Hong Kong literature for quite a while, so that's exciting. And another thing that's exciting is that my guest for the show is Natasha Bruce, a very interesting translator who seems to exclusively translate very interesting authors. We get a little bit into that in our conversation in the interview that you're going to hear for the main uh, sandwich of this episode. But before we take a bite into the meaty or protein-rich part of that sandwich for you vegetarians out there, we've got the Trichific News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So, three items. The first one, I think this is going to be a exciting piece of news for real connoisseurs of uh, translated Chinese to English lit, maybe especially translators. I believe this is an, it's a, a new book that's come out. It's one of the great books by an author whose translation to English seems to have been very delayed. He's been a, a sort of a notable absence for people that know their stuff, as far as I'm aware. He's been recommended to me before, I believe. This is Wang Xiaobo, and his book is Golden Age. It has made it to English publication via none other than Penguin Random House. And the translator is Yan Yan, who I believe was the co-translator alongside Jack Hargreaves on Li Juan's Winter Pasture. I believe that's the same Yan Yan. If I have that wrong, then please do strike me down or get in touch via social media. So I have not read this book. It uh, seems to be a sort of a critical look back on misbehavior during the Cultural Revolution. Apparently there's a lot of sex in it. I wouldn't know anything about that. But yeah, this seems to be a very big deal. It has a very pretty cover. I suggest um, going online and having a look, looking it up. It's got a sort of a down to the countryside um, themed cover, shall we say. Okay, second news item. I've decided to make this one our meta news item for some reason. Don't ask me why. There's no real reason. Uh, anyway, the news for the second piece is this. I have just finished, well, not just recently, I finished uh, polishing a transcript that was first put through an AI and then tidied up by one of the February interns. It was Shuhan, uh, Kang Shuhan, an amazing intern who did a great job working on this transcript. I finished polishing it. It's for the episode on Taipei people, um, where I interviewed or chatted with Nadia Ho about Bai Xianyong's, I don't know if it's his most famous book, one of his most famous books, the short stories in there. So it's episode 56. So to read this transcript, just follow the, follow the link in the show notes. If you want to see the other transcripts that exist, go to the web, uh, go to the podcast home website, trichafic.com, T-R-C-H-F-I-C.com and just navigate to the transcripts. Now be aware, on the website, underneath the links to all the full, fully fleshed out transcripts, there are some some links to so-called AI-generated transcripts, ones that I haven't polished. But be aware, the podcast platform I use now can actually generate those for me for free. So if, you, if you're using a podcast app that can read transcripts, like transcript metadata, then go in and you should find a transcript loaded for every episode of my show. 
Obviously, they're AI generated, so they're not quite perfect. It's funnily enough, sometimes they pick up Chinese Chinese in the spoken words and will spell it in the characters. Other times, it'll like mishear the word. But do take a look if you're using a podcast app that can read such things. I believe not many can yet, but as time progresses, I think more and more pods should uh, pod apps should be picking that up. So that's exciting. And speaking of exciting, the last piece of Trutrific news, this is pretty damn cool. Author of The Three-Body Problem, Liu Cixin, recently spoke at the UN. The UN was holding a Chinese language day, a um, series of celebrations or at least events, and Da Liu, Big Liu, Liu Cixin spoke at it. He gave a lecture. Now, I've not watched this. I don't know what the theme of the lecture was. One thing I do know is that one of the sort of auxiliary additional speakers perhaps doing an introduction, was a fairly recent show guest, Mingwei Song, or Song Mingwei if you prefer, who's a scholar on Chinese lit with a bit of a specialism in sci-fi. And I believe he's a, a friend, or at least a very close contact of Liu Cixin. So do check that out. It's up online. Funnily enough, the link I found for it is a Facebook stream, so you can watch this one on Facebook. The idea of watching an hour-long video on Facebook is... Um, that's just something I've not done for a long time, but that that's where I've got it. Find the link to that in the show notes. That is the conclusion of the Trutrific News, just three items this episode. I hope you enjoy the interview that follows. Just be aware that um, this short story is not out yet, but the collection it's in should be making its journey through to um, translation and, well, translated publication in good time. So yeah, enjoy. So on the show, we have Natasha Bruce, a first time appearance in the show. Wonderful to have you here, Natasha. Uh, for listeners who are not familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can, yes. Uh, can I first tell you why I'm really uh, pleased to be on your show? Oh, yeah. If you like. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to deviate from the format, but um, I wanted to say that we're here to talk about a story called um, Quarantine, right? And... Um, it feels really uh, like kind of coming full circle because actually the um, a time when I began listening to your show was during quarantine or the really extended lockdown in 2020 when I was living in Santiago in Chile and we had this uh, five month period when we were not supposed to leave the apartment block or you had you could you had to get a police permit to leave the apartment block so you could leave once a week or something and you weren't actually supposed to even leave your apartment. Um, and after a kind of a month or so of this, then the residents of the apartment block started to get really stir crazy and everybody started um, sneaking out to uh, walk up and down the stairwell because um, there were no kind of uh, security cameras there. So the guards of the building couldn't really see you. So everyone was just walking up and down the stairwell, which was like, um, I guess, 24 flights of stairs. So it was really, oh, really gosh. boring. So during that period... Then I got really into podcasts. And so I started listening to your um, back catalog. And uh, so now that I'm talking to you, it feels like I'm, you, basically this podcast is very strongly associated for me with lockdowns and uh, quarantines. And so I hope that's an auspicious sign for uh, us talking about this story. It was a very good time for, for podcasters, I think. <laughs> Imagine, actually, yeah. lots, of, lots more um, listeners and uh, lots of time to work on audio editing. And pretty easy to get a hold of people for interviews because people are just looking for a way to eat up the time. 
Um, but yes, now I can tell you who I am as well. Um, mm. So apart from an avid listener of this podcast and someone who walked up and down stairs a lot in 2020, um, then I'm also a translator of Chinese fiction, sometimes of Italian and sometimes of poetry, although um, mainly fiction. And the poetry I have translated has mainly been by Dorothy Say, who we're going to talk about today. And I live in Amsterdam. I've lived here for about a year and a half now. And those are probably the most, the, the main, the main points. Oh, I was going to say that I had um, been thinking that I know sometimes when people introduce themselves, then they choose, they, they sort of talk about what they specialize in, in terms of translation. And mm. I was trying to think if I could say that I specialize in a particular kind of fiction. And I think I like translating quite a broad range, but if I had to say what I've been kind of leaning towards for the last couple of years, or at least what I've been, what I like translating, it probably is this story is probably quite representative. I like translating kind of quite intense and unsettling literary fiction by women. I guess that that's that's the theme. Yeah, you do Tantra as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a book, uh, Mystery Train, came out a few months ago. Yes, and uh, and quite a lot of Dorothy's fiction. Right. Yes. Everything I've read by Tantra, it almost everything I've read by Tantra is has been. Uh, very intense, and there's a better word I'm not thinking of. Um, some puts you through the ringer, I think. That that that's a really good description. Yeah, it feels like you're trapped inside something and you can't get out. So once you're in, yeah, you're really just inside the story, and you're gonna be unsettled. There's no way around that. Yes, and probably in half an hour, I'm gonna think of what word I was I was reaching for. Uh, my, <laughs> yeah, when it finally emerges from the nothing space. My next question for you, I'm just going by the book, by what I've written down, is mm-hmm. your origin story as a translator. So like uh, when, and also possibly importantly, where did your connection with Chinese literature begin? Well, I, I studied Chinese as an undergrad, but I didn't study, I guess, specifically translation. And um, after I graduated, then I, I, I didn't do a lot with Chinese for a few years. Um, and actually, in many ways, the way that I got back into Chinese literature was through Dorothy Tse, who is the first author that I translated. And I can tell you exactly when and exactly where I was when I encountered her work. Um, and it was 2015. Um, and I was in the educational bookshop, which is a, a bookshop and cafe in East Jerusalem. And um, a friend had sent me a link to a competition that her short story was the set text for. And um, so I was in that cafe and I I had a free afternoon and I thought I would um, look at the story. So so that was, I read the story I loved and um, I basically continued to work with Dorothy more or less since that moment, I guess. So yeah, that was the origin. And then kind of by coincidence, um, about... A year later, I ended up moving to Hong Kong. And so once I was there, I was also, I met Dorothy in real life. And I also met more Chinese literature in a way because I was surrounded by bookshops and I encountered just, yeah, more events and more writers. And yeah, it started from there. Cool. Uh, I'll admit, while I was listening to your answer, I thought of the word grueling to try and describe Tantra. Grueling. That's good. I, I put grueling into thesaurus.com. And I found sometimes on thesaurus.com, you put a word and you think will give you some really rich fruits and you get nothing. Grueling yeah. is a great, a great page on thesaurus.com. Uh, arduous, backbreaking, brutal, demanding, excruciating, mm. laborious, punishing, strenuous, torturous, yes. chastening. It's a great one. Oh, 
He's a good one. I like strenuous, strenuous also because I think um, that kind of gets at like the physicality of the stories that when you're reading them, it's kind of, yeah, it's, yeah, and grueling is the same thing. It's that thing where it's not just a kind of mental experience where you feel trapped as something happens to your body as well, which um, I'm sure she'll be happy to hear because that's something that she's always writing about, how she thinks that you have to work to understand things in a physical way. Yeah, and racking is in there as well. Oh, nice. I had a very good experience. I downloaded, there's a video, I know we're, we're not here to talk about Sanchoa, but I got to get this out. Um, <laughs> there was, I might have talked about this in the episode I did about her before, but whatever. Um, I downloaded a talk she gave in English. Uh, it's titled on YouTube, Stubborn Dirty Snow, which is like, yeah. that's a translation yeah. of her pen name. And she was talking about all sorts of, you know, all sorts of the things that occupy her mind. And she was getting to the bit about how you need to like, how you need to literature needs to make you aware of your body and feel it in your body and all these yeah, yeah. very abstract ideas. But I was out running and I'm not very fit. Yeah. <laughs> so that was perfect. And I was running in the in the dark uh, at night <laughs> as well, which I think was also that sounds like an absolutely terrifying combination. <laughs> yeah. Well it made me feel um invigorated. Yeah. Uh, Sandra Sandra seems like she has a lot of uh puff. I think that is exactly right. I think she has a lot of puff. She's a very vigorous person. Vigorous, yeah. Anyway, um, enough enough of Tantra. We're going to talk about Dorothy Tse. Um, so you've kind of answered this one already, but who is she to you? Yeah, I guess I kind of answered it, but also not. Um, in that, yeah, I think it's. A, I think you phrased this question really well because um, obviously she's a she's a brilliant writer. She's a kind of rock star in Hong Kong, and um, many people admire her and respect her including me um but to me specifically yeah she's really important as a as a person um in that yeah she's the first person I translated she's probably the writer I've worked with most extensively since I started translating um and I definitely do consider her by this point a friend um like a really good friend um because we've worked together very closely and when I lived in Hong Kong obviously I I saw her in person um, but then perhaps even more significantly, once I left Hong Kong, we ended up going to quite a few residencies together. So I would say that we've probably spent at least maybe around four months living together in the same kind of small space and every day kind of eating together and talking about her work and my translation of it, but also about our lives um, more generally. And um, yeah, I think of it as a really special relationship. In fact, I could probably talk for at least an hour about this. Like, I, actually, I don't know if I could, because I don't know how to talk about it, but I want someone to either write about it or help me talk about it. This relationship between translators and writers can be so intense and you can call it a friendship and you can call it a kind of working relationship. But I think it's just something, some kind of interesting merging of those two because it's really intimate and really, really special. Yeah, I really... Um, Really love Dorothy Say. Wonderful. It sounds like um, there's another podcast episode in there. Maybe not on this show, <laughs> but um, yeah. there's something there. Just out of curiosity, so she's she's a Hong Kong writer. Yeah. Um, the well, I guess Hong Kong kind of has two languages, especially these days, Cantonese and Mandarin. If yeah. you're speaking with her, what what are you speaking in? Is it Cantonese or English or so Mandarin? It- yeah, it's English actually, and right. um, her English is really good. And um, yeah, so that's actually 
it's really great because it does mean that we're able to really also talk about the translation. So she reads the translation and she can, um, yeah, talk to me about choices. And it makes me feel less, I don't want to say alone, because it's not that you're alone as a translator when the writer can't read it, because you, you can also talk to other translators and, and editors. But somehow it feels maybe especially collaborative when the author is able to be part of, of that that end of the process too. That's great. Yeah. But it is interesting because if she reads it aloud, she would, of course, read it aloud in Cantonese. And if I were to read it aloud, then it would be, I would read it aloud in Mandarin because my Cantonese is not that good. So that I always think of that as an interesting distinction. Sometimes, especially if I'm translating her poetry, then I would make her record herself reading it in Cantonese so that I had that sound in my mind. That is a pretty special characteristic of Chinese characters, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. The sound is can be anything really yeah in theory it's just the thought strikes me from time to time and it's it's just very it's very interesting um right so that's who she is to you uh but what sort of sort of a writer is is she you've said before you like uh what did you say very intense uh unsettling unsettling yeah. stories by by female writers so what you, you've said that could you tell us more yeah so she's definitely intense and unsettling and there's one word that I'm not going to use in relation to her writing, which is normally used in relation to her writing, which you can probably guess. But I feel that sometimes it's used and then it's sort of, it's meant to explain more than it can, I think. Um, so I'm going to say that she is, yeah, she's a writer from Hong Kong, like you've said. And she, until relatively recently, she's been writing mainly short stories. And I think often very short stories. They're normally set in really huge high-rise cities that feel either vaguely or just very overtly menacing. And there's usually a character who's at the center of these stories um, who's trying and failing to kind of make sense of what's happening around them. I would say that um, a word that comes up maybe most frequently in her stories is vanish. So there's just a sense of things mm. vanishing. Um, and then connected to that is this idea of things are changing really fast or really disconcertingly. So, for example, the first story that I translated in the um, educational bookshop in Jerusalem was about a city where all the mothers have vanished and they've been replaced by chickens or, or these crates of chickens have been shipped in and the mothers have gone. Um, another one that came quite soon after that was um, somebody who, a child who wakes up and sees their father in the middle of the night with a hammer knocking his own teeth out. Um, and then one that I really like, which was is about... Um, a, a big high-rise city where um, businessmen keep getting kidnapped and then stripped naked and put in these fish tanks in the basement of a shopping mall. And then the housewives of the city will come and, and buy them back as pets. So, um, yeah, Dorothy's not really afraid to be, I guess, grotesque um, or, yeah, dark or, or just really, really weird. Um, and I think that her her language is really special um, I think her language is really, um, really dense and really unusual and very, very precise. So it has this, uh, the effect that I think it has is that it really, um, with the short stories, will kind of suck you in and then kind of hold you in place. Um, and I feel like it's as if you stepped into some like really, really ornate embroidery, maybe. So it's like this very intense image and then you're inside it and you're kind of like covered in threads <laughs> and you're kind of trapped there and you're trying to see and also you're feeling it I don't know um but that's the short stories and this story that we're going to talk about is actually for Dorothy 
relatively long as a as a story as a as a short story. Oh gosh, and right. Yeah, and maybe we're going to talk about this more later. But um, also recently, she she's written a novel um, or is writing another a second novel. Um, and her long form work, I think, has many of the characteristics of the shorter work, but it also has a different feel to it. Right. So the the novel is Owlish, right? Owlish is a novel. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a long, medium-sized, or a short novel? As a novel? Well, for her, I mean, it's a novel. Um, how many? I think it's a, I would say it's a medium, a short-ish novel, but it's it's not a novella. I heard mm. someone call it a novella recently, and I it, it's definitely not a novella. It's a novel. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. That's a, a thing I feel I would um, put my foot down if someone misuses the word novella. Yeah, I felt like I translated it, and it was, you know, I think it was over a hundred thousand Chinese characters. So I feel, yeah, we can call, we can just go ahead and say that's a novel. That's fair, yeah. And similarly, if someone calls a tiny little novel a novel, there is definitely a part of me that inside me that would be like fighting the urge, or would allow myself to say, "Well, actually, it's more of a novella." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I am looking forward to reading that at some point because it it sounds great. But we're not here to talk about Eilish. We're here to talk about quarantine. Yeah. This uh, a, a long, by Dorothy standards, short story. Yeah. So first thing to talk about would probably be characters, setting, plot. The seemingly yes. very simple things that might end up slipping away from us once we get into the the weeds or into the the lace curtains. <laughs> the crazy embroidery threads of the really intricate embroidery. Uh, embroidery. Mm. Um yeah. Um, well, this one I don't feel is so much like the the embroidery because it's got this. It's got a bit more space in it, so you you sort of like move through it rather than just sit in it because it's a bit longer. Um, but yeah, let's nail down the details of the plot. Um, and I'm actually interested once we start talking to see how our understandings of what the plot is match up or don't. Um, I meant I meant to reread this one today because it's so slippery, and I just. I could have read it on the bus, actually, but I uh, I listened to podcasts and played video games on my phone that instead. Is, that is fine. We, we, I think we're, we're going to anyway make it through. So yeah. what I understand to be the very simple overview of the plot is that um, there's a woman. She uh, kind of, We understand from the opening paragraphs that she's kind of a housewife. She has a husband and a son. Um, she wakes up in the middle of the night and um, because some health workers have come to her apartment, and want to take her to uh, an isolation camp. Um, she's a little confused because her husband and son are not in the apartment at the time. Um, she goes with these workers to the isolation camp. While she's there, she kind of gets very sleepy and starts sort of thinking about how her life could have been different to kind of massively summarize the bulk of the story. And then at the end, she leaves. That, that's like, a, that's like the, the basic points, would you say? Yeah, that's that's the... Yeah, the the basics. I can confess, first time I read the story, I didn't even really realize her family situation because her mm -hmm. husband and son are never called husband or son. They're just mm -hmm. referred to by their names, which yes. in this translation are Dao and Sao. Yeah. So I was trying to like, I think because I, I understood that she writes slightly stranger things and my scattered morning brain wasn't ready to accept that oh yeah this is a kind of a simple family a one child family <laughs> I, was trying to think, I mean is it a simple family the biggest no yeah is it some kind of alternative family i think that they are representing in, in fact a relative like the normal family of dad mom little son 
but is it a normal family? That that's the quest one of the questions that might come up as the story progresses. Um, because yeah, there's some some loose ends, some 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 compl complications uh, arise throughout the story. Um, and yeah, we should say then that the the dad is called Dal and the the son is called Sal, right? That's the that's the names, which will become relevant later, I think. Yeah. Um, and you, I, for on my reread, I sort of um, I I think. I, I came to the obvious realization or should have been obvious realization once the one's husband once the son just by paying attention to their relationships but the, like the the info is all there like she does mention that uh, at some point she got married yeah. therefore she's still married therefore yeah. this man she lives with is probably her husband but a lot of things aren't quite said directly yeah. and yeah, exactly. I suppose those things add up as the story progresses yeah exactly and I don't know when I should give this information i don't know if i gave it to you already actually that this story is uh part of a collection that dorothy's working on which is oh, yeah. um yeah each of them uh drawing on a particular fairy tale so this story uh, kind of underneath the story is the idea of sleeping beauty um which um uh, i'm interested to, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know when to start giving more details but so um yeah throughout this story there is a lot of reference to feeling sleepy um and there are these kind of uh, it's like almost a tick that the narrator has because the first person narrator that she'll be trying to remember things because that's kind of what starts happening she goes into this isolation camp and she starts kind of thinking about her life and remembering uh kind of two key characters in particular this friend that she's very obsessed with and this uh, other woman in her apartment block that she's also very obsessed with and um every so often she'll she'll sort of remember a detail and say is that what happened or is that when I pricked my finger? Oh yes, that's when my 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 hand hit the side of the door and the, the splinter went into my finger. And then she gets sleepy again. And then it's almost like we we move further in the in the narrative. That's what the splinters were about. <laughs> yeah, but there's no reason realize. why you would know that, but that, that is the splinter. But that's also interesting because actually just before we um signed on for this uh, conversation, I suddenly thought. God, I don't even know what the actual story of Sleeping Beauty is. So I was trying to uh, <laughs> quickly Google Sleeping Beauty storyline um, because that that's relevant, I think, because, yeah, of course, that will, that will help us, I think. And so what I understand from the Sleeping Beauty storyline is that um, Aurora, who I don't know if she's originally a princess or any kind of noble person or if she's just a normal girl. I um, think she's a princess. She's a princess. Oh, yeah, right. And she gets cursed by... Um, a, 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 an evil fairy, I think. Because she Angel has this fairy godmother. Angelina Jolie, uh, Maleficent. <laughs> yeah. I'm just remembering the Disney cartoon. She pricks her finger on the spinning mm. wheel, right? And then she falls asleep. And the idea is that she can't wake up from her sleep until uh, true love, uh, that her true love kisses her or something. So it's kind of peak passivity, I guess, is what's happening in Sleeping Beauty, the original story. Um, and of course, Dorothy isn't just kind of rewriting the story uh, for the modern age. of She's as with all the other stories and that I've read in, in this particular collection of hers, um, yeah, she's always trying to twist it somehow. And I think that is very relevant in this story, the idea of how much this woman is taking responsibility for her own life or not. That's, that, that changes it a lot. The, the thing that the, the multiple ambiguous pricks of her finger made yeah. me think of is there's an author who I've He's a favorite of mine that I've brought up pretty much every time a weird with a big W story yeah. comes up. He's called Robert Aikman. He's got a story about a woman whose marriage is sort of in trouble. I think the, the main trouble is that 
her husband is completely useless and she's losing mm-hmm. interest in him and i think she's um yeah i think she's like sort of um getting very close to being unfaithful to him mm-hmm. and one day she she's led by a man through a thicket in the woods and i think later tries to get back there with her husband or, yeah. or something like that and the husband yeah. happens to like scratch himself on a thorn mm-hmm. and then it he's like bleeding far too heavily for one should from a scratch from a thorn and then like it's sort of said through implication oh he's, he's a bit unwell he's not getting better and then oh, he's, he just he's slips away and he dies oh wow <laughs> um so it's like this dream quietly horrifying like dream logic of what what's going yeah. on and i did feel yeah. that creeping in yeah um as the story progressed with the rob the robert aikman stories there's a very famous line from neil gaiman who says something like you it, the, the effect is having a trick pulled on you by a magician but you're not sure what the trick was and you don't know when it began yes yeah yeah that that's a great line yeah i think that that really captures it a bit like you, that also is the feeling you get with this story where you arrive at the end and you're like a trick has happened but <laughs> yeah how <laughs> someone's um, yeah someone messed with me yeah 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 and the reality distorting effects of lockdown i think were real yeah. a lot of us felt it time felt weird yeah it's true i th- i was thinking about that because it's it's actually really interesting that it's called quarantine and it has this uh isolation camp uh sort of detail um because yeah i, I guess uh yeah, you you were well. You haven't asked me yet, but I know that you're planning to ask me whether um, it's about lockdown, like whether this is a story about lockdown in Hong Kong. Mm. And um, I guess my first instinct to that question would be no, it's absolutely not about lockdown because I mean, lockdown is just the premise. Like she's just uh, using this this uh, detail that people were indeed like neighborhoods were cordoned off in Hong Kong and people were taken to isolation camps where they did have to stay in kind of individual rooms until they were deemed to be healthy enough to leave. Um, but to me, initially, that seemed like a, a kind of just a just a way to get this woman outside the context of her family. Like it was just a sort of, yeah, it was a pretext. But then I was thinking about it some more and I was thinking that um, I think that might have been too hasty an opinion because maybe there is something about um, the way that lockdowns interrupted the pace of people's everyday life. Like for everybody in some way, their life has been interrupted. So for me, it was yeah, walking up and down the stairs. But here um, there's this woman who, from the details that we're given, it seems that she runs this very, um, that she's quite stressed out about being a housewife, that she's very concerned with like, feeding her husband and son healthy food. She specifies that it can't be food from a tin. And she's very concerned with, um, yeah, showing a good example to her kid. And then this thing happens that really, uh, yeah, brings her um, out of that pattern. She's suddenly forced to be by herself and contemplate her her life and the things that she's given up in her life and to, yeah, reflect on that, which I think did happen a lot to people in lockdown. Um, so I, I think it might be more about, like, I mean, COVID is not mentioned in the story. Actually, health is not mentioned beyond mm. the first few paragraphs when she gets taken away. So it's not it's not about um, the pandemic at all. But I think it's a uh, yeah, it's getting at that kind of break in routine that happened in that period. I would say, well, that's certainly one of the things that one of the themes that I, w- I would say there is. It's it's implicit in what we've discussed, and it's right there in the story. But um, many of us during lockdown were. You know, stuck indoors with whoever we happen to live with, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, well, I feel sorry for everyone who's a parent and and got locked in with their children 
especially when they had to work remotely that's mad um yeah. or there's people like myself who were um just um was in the early stages of a relationship which got accelerated slightly um, yeah because uh, we were living living uh, in the same yeah the same cabin for for quite a while with no yeah. escape um but it's a whole other story if um your countries or your your home your <laughs> country's a fiddly word for hong kong if the place where you live has taken on a, a covid policy that could see you yeah isolated on your own not even yeah. in your own home uh, yeah. like someone in the uk in lockdown would have been isolated in their own home but this isn't even that this is a, one step yeah. further into sort of a uh a void a nowhere place where it's just you and your thoughts yeah 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 exactly mm -hmm. um so we, we've sort of written it off as a COVID-19 story, maybe as a quarantine story. Um, no, no, I, I, I am going to say that I don't, I'm not going to write it off. And I, and I okay. don't, I don't really, I don't think it's, in my opinion, it's not primarily a COVID-19 story, but I think that that is a thread that is more important than I was originally willing to concede. Okay. But I think there are other themes that we're probably going to get to that I think are more at the core of it right the point i was trying to make there is trying to tease apart the covid19 and yes. the, the lockdown right 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 like, yep yeah we're not we're not worried that um our our hero's gonna uh get taken out by by the bug and we don't even <laughs> no, necessarily that's not gonna happen know. spoiler for everybody listening who doesn't die of covid yes and we don't even like you said i don't think we know precisely that it's covid19 no exactly yeah be no no it's never mentioned yeah is um it's also i guess like that creates also this this sense of kind of unsettling not not what's the words the noun of that but it creates this this feeling of um kind of tension from the start because it's just mystery like you don't know why and it's the middle of the night and why is the health worker arriving in the middle of the night rather than at 4 p.m in the afternoon after a phone call informing her of his decision it's all quite kind of shocking um and yeah unsettling from the start i would say yeah a strange a strange uh, situation um I, I'm realizing I didn't really, I don't really have any questions about the other characters. And I'm realizing, I realized when you mentioned her friend that she's a bit obsessed with, I hadn't really memorized precisely like what her relationship with her friend is and then mm -hmm. how that contrasts with or doesn't contrast with the other woman that she gets a bit obsessed with. So would you like yeah. to sort of introduce the... um We've sort the of met characters. the male characters, the husband and little boy, <laughs> about the uh, the other two grown women. Yeah, yeah, and the other two women don't have names. So, um, but I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll talk about them. Maybe that also helps tell us a bit or explain a bit what happens kind of in the main, in the bulk of the story when the narrator is in this uh, single room at the isolation camp, where incidentally she has lied to them because when she entered the camp they said do you live alone and she said yes so from entering the camp she kind of denies the existence of her husband and son and gets her own room and um the the smell of the food in the isolation camp reminds her it brings her back to her school days and it reminds her of this friend of hers who she describes being incredibly close with until a year ago um so a year ago in the story time so until relatively recently um and actually like she while she's in the camp, the friend is, is really the main person that she thinks about because everything she does in the camp, she starts thinking about in relation to the friend. And what we understand is that this friend um, used to be very encouraging of the narrator's art and that the, uh, the narrator used to do a lot of art and the, the friend of the narrator was 
convinced that she would be, you know, really successful. And I used to plan how she would have exhibitions and uh, like, you know, be a famous artist. Um, and that what what it becomes clear has happened is that the narrator got married and had a child and and gave up this artistic path. And when she's in the in the isolation camp, then she becomes obsessed with this thinking of this friend, and she also becomes obsessed with the thought that in the in the room opposite hers, which she's not able to see unless she climbs on a chair and looks through this tiny window, and even then she can't see the people in the room. She just sees like their hand every so often come out of the room to collect food that's been left for them. But she comes to convince that the people in this room are in fact her husband and son who are in the room um, with another woman. And, and actually her reaction to that is really interesting because she doesn't think, oh, I feel betrayed or I miss them or um, why aren't they talking to me? She just thinks, what am I going to say to my friend when I tell her about this? And then her thought is, my friend would just tell me to forget it. My friend would just tell me that I should do art and that's all that matters. So then that kind of inspires her to start doing some art in the, um, in the room, uh, in the isolation camp. And I, I think that's what I would think of as kind of the, the like halfway point in the story where everything really begins to shift because she does this art. And there's this paragraph that when I first started translating it, I was really worried about it. it was really hard to translate and it sounded really like it, it sort of almost seemed like it was going to go into the one of those like really cheesy montages where someone who hasn't been doing art for a while suddenly starts painting and then they make a masterpiece and 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 I mean it didn't seem like a place that Dorothy was going to go but it almost seems like with the reader you're almost convinced that's what's going to happen but then what actually happens is that the narrator finishes her picture and then um, feels very dissatisfied with it and thinks that isn't even my picture. I didn't even do it. How can I tell my friend about it? Because it's not me that did it. It's this woman that lives in my apartment block. And then she starts kind of going further back in time and remembering this woman that lives in her apartment block, who is kind of the alternative version of herself. This woman in her apartment block is um, an artist who, um, yeah, paints all the time and, uh, yeah, lives in this uh, beautiful studio where, which has no divisions between the rooms is just one big room full of art and um yeah who our narrator um has a pretty complicated relationship with i would say throughout the story yeah and i guess where what you're describing is sort of the mids to just past midway point of the story yeah. and i think the the best way i could try and like you know blink and figure out how dorothy say is pulling the rug out from under us without us noticing yeah. is that she's the i think the biggest thing it's it's introducing a blow by not blow by blow um turn by turn mm -hmm. an unre unreliable narrator where yes. like you start to realize hang on what what did she just say <laughs> and then yeah. what did she just say and then immediately deny um yeah so she remembers her friend telling her so the friend she remembers the friend telling her the narrator an incident where the narrator told this friend that she wanted to go to the bathroom, fill the tub, and hold little Sal under the water, fantasizing yes. about what his face would look like as it started to turn purple. And then the yeah. narrator immediately says, I couldn't believe she would say something like that. <laughs> she had it all wrong. Yeah. And then tells an uh, sort of equally, well, reasonably convincing alternative story that um, she'd been nannying and she had, well, she, it sounds like a reasonable story where like a kid she was nannying um what, what did he do pinched put his hand on her face as she was dozing off yeah um but then she yeah. mentions oh yeah that kid was called sal 
Yeah. And then, whoa, hang on a minute. It sort of yes. feels like some. I've closed my eyes, someone's spinning me around and I've just opened my eyes. Yeah, this that was my favourite part of the story, I think, because that particular section is just deeply... Um, yeah, this is where you start to really question everything <laughs> because, yeah, there's the, the the friend basically telling her that she wanted, she'd mentioned wanting to drown her own child. And then it switched to actually know when I was a nanny, I nannied a child who had exactly the same name as my child. Um, and uh, yeah, I used to paint, I, I was painting a picture of a child in a womb. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about a child surrounded by liquid. And, uh, and as an added detail or the, the, to add to this, then the woman in the apartment building, one time they, or the first time they meet, they run into each other in the lift. And the, um, the artist woman from the apartment building um, says, when she hears that the kid is called Sal, she says, oh, if I had a child, I would name him Sal. Um, so the, the idea of this name being kind of copied from, because of circulating, it just keeps coming up. Um, and of course, it's really hard to, sort of not think that there's this issue of um yeah I guess creation artistically and also procreation because yeah at the end of the paragraph that you were talking about then she says to her friend maybe I should paint a child into my own womb and that would be the most thrilling creation of all and then the artist uh, uh, woman at another point kind of says you have no idea how hard it is not to have a kid because I just keep painting the same picture and I wish I had a child called Sal um, so this is sort of women discussing what kind of creation they want to do, I suppose. I feel like that came through really strongly for me as a as a kind of theme. So, as I was listening, I was glancing through the following paragraphs in the story. And I remember there's a bit where um, I think they, well, they each sort of visit each other's house. And yeah. the friendship seems to blossom very quickly. But like yeah. just bouncing on the sort of sea, middle of the seesaw of, it's believable and it's a short story so I can accept it's accelerating events and then the other the other way you're being pulled is well this doesn't really seem quite right something yeah it's not quite that normal to venture right into your neighbor's house and become no no they cross all kinds them. of boundaries right yeah. because when the when the neighbor comes to visit the narrator then the narrator goes to make some tea and then she comes back into the living room and the neighbor has tidied everything up so that it's the perfect house and her son is really calm and is sitting on the woman's lap and the woman is kind of saying, I would love to borrow your husband and your son and your whole happy life, um, which is obviously quite a statement. And then when it happens the other way around and the narrator goes to the neighbor's uh, sort of amazing studio, she sees this painting that the, um, the neighbor has been doing and just starts just starts continuing the painting. But this, I, I don't know if this is the time to mention my theory about it all, but it does link to your idea of the unreliable narrator. Because yeah. I don't even know if, I don't even know if I ever had any expectation that she would be reliable because she's kind of, I feel like she's just moving through memory, which is never reliable. So it's just like her perspective keeps changing and you, um, at a certain point, it doesn't even become important like what what exactly is real because all of it seems so, um, yeah, so steeped in just perception. Um, but I suddenly had the feeling, and I only thought of this actually when I was reading the story again today, where I wondered if the narrator is actually the artist woman from the apartment block um, who is fantasizing about being a, a mother um, with a husband and a small child. Because actually throughout the story, She's never with the husband and the child. She's alone in her apartment. The health workers come to get her and take her to the isolation camp. And then she's alone. 
Um, and then she's thinking very intensely about all these things, but there's nothing to actually suggest that she isn't just the artist woman who's obsessed with um, this idea of what it would have been like to have a family. So that, that was one thing I thought of. And then I felt even more unsettled when I read the story with that idea in mind. My thought on like trying to arrive at one answer, like, is it all real? Is it sleep? Is it memory? Is there some mm. kind of doubling or or something going on with the personas of these two women? There's a there's a line, my eyes just glanced over it, where um our narrator has got herself yet another question mark splinter. Mm-hmm. And then it says this, it says, her eyes seem to be looking at me from very far away. And as a result, to be perceiving me mm-hmm. more deeply than ever before. I thought I'd only just prick myself, but she said, the splinter yes. is already fused with your flesh. You'll never get it out now. She looked sad. And that's yes. just it. You're not going to be able to set, you can't pull yeah. the twines apart. Um, yeah, you can't. And also, I, I wonder if that's also about that idea that of, of that 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 kind of like sadness of making choices that once you've made can't be taken back. And for example, this choice of, okay, you, you, you have a kid and you, you, choose, you choose one of those paths and that's a decision you've made and then that splinter is in your flesh and it's not something you can just get it out. You can't get it out. That's, that's, that's where you are now. Um, and yeah, time has passed and, and here they are, the friend and the neighbor and the, and, and the mother of the, of the son. Um, yeah, that, that, was a really, that was a really sad line, I think. Yeah. Real. Um, as a child of divorced parents, it's very true that the undo button is not an undo button. You only you've only got the forward button. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I think this story it just feels like what it's yeah it, it's really getting at how if you don't take control of the forward button and press it yourself, it's going to happen anyway. So this idea of like don't don't fall asleep for a hundred years and and let these things happen. You have to try to sort of shake up the passivity which i guess is what the friend's role is in this story because the friend is the one who's sort of talking like it's like the muse is saying if you want to do this do it stop uh yeah stop looking through the tiny window at the top of your cell and guessing what's happening on the other side real um it also struck me i was trying to think i was thinking some of this reminds me of um of things i've seen by david lynch but i, and I was mm-hmm. trying to think what they were and it it came to me um there's two of his films that in my mind sort of go together uh lost highway and uh mulholland drive i don't know if you have yeah. you seen those i've seen mulholland drive yeah and mm, the, the experience is actually really similar i yeah <laughs> the feeling at the end of the film yeah i won't i won't spoil the films suffice to say i think for for lynch heads it's generally accepted that both of those although they feel really hard to to pick apart and understand and they seem sort of very despite all of the how confusing and strange they are they more or less both have an answer and the answer for both of them is somewhat similar Uh, and again i'll try not to spoil that basically someone is in really heavy denial and is repressing some unfortunate truths they don't want to face and then and then that produces well that produces the film you watch and finally the truth breaks yeah. free at the end yeah. and i guess we have something like that here but i don't know if the truth ever really breaks through which maybe is also in some ways it's less satisfying and therefore in some ways more realistic that that's that how it goes often no you just uh you don't know what you're not sure what's going on but it's not that you suddenly get clarity sometimes you just keep going and that's kind of at the end she's imagining leaving the the isolation camp and she in, in her imagination what's going to happen is that her she'll get in the car with dal and sal 
and uh, her phone will just fill with messages that haven't come through while she's been away. And uh, Sal will ask her to, I don't know, cook his favorite dessert or something. And it will be back to that kind of mundane cycle as it was before, but she's not going to get maybe the resolution that we hope she'll get if indeed she is the mom of Sal throughout the story. Yeah, it's definitely funny, isn't it, that in the smartphone age, we have this amazing symbol of our social lives coming rushing back and it's the rush of notifications. Yes, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you leave in the internet for 24 hours, then yeah. Yeah. as soon as it's back, it comes right back. Yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny and it's well captured in, in the story. Uh, right, so we've we've talked about the unreliable or, or not narrator. I have another translator-ish question. I'm somewhat aware that we're we're getting through these at a reasonable clip, so um, I may throw in more ex- extra questions as we go along. But go the, the the translatorish question is this: Why are Dao and Sao called Dao and Sao? Does that have a connection with the source text, the source well, language? This actually does have quite an interesting explanation, but it's not really to do with me. So um, originally in the, in the Chinese, then she called them Salvador and Dali. Um, which, oh. um, yeah, I actually really liked, but and, and oh. it was not my choice to make them Dal and Sal. That was Dorothy's choice. I right. think she decided it was too obvious. Um, but I, I mean, it, and it, it's true that when you're reading it, I think maybe one editor read it. I think it might have been an editor that suggested that we make it Dal and Sal because they said that the Salvador and Dali thing was very prominent. So there was really in your mind as you were reading it, you, every time you see Salvador and Dali together, of course, you, you immediately are thinking, where are the paintings? Obviously, that's a when I think of of, of that when when they were called Salvador and Dali, I just constantly had this image of the melting clocks, and I think that's quite a nice backdrop for the story. Actually, this idea of melting clocks, um, but in fact, I think there was also this. I think one of the reasons that Dorothy decided to call uh, the the kid Salvador is that she has a nephew called Salvador, and I think she was staying um, near where the nephew lives in Vermont when she was working on this story and then he said something like can you put me in your story and um she said yes so that 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 was part of the motivations um and then um there's actually also a part that was really confusing to me as the translator where at a certain point she's imagining the narrator is imagining what sal would be saying if he was on the bus with her and what she imagines he would be saying is oh can we go to a hotel like when we were on holiday can we go and see Franny? Or can we go and see the magic show with Franny or something? Mm-hmm. Um, and the Chinese characters for Franny, uh, I had never seen them together before. And I, I was looking them up and I, the best I could guess was that it was Dorothy's version of Jasmine, the princess from Aladdin or something. I really couldn't uh, right. figure out what they were standing for. It, there was appeared to be no previously existing uh, combination of these characters on the entire internet. And so <laughs> obviously I, I asked her, and she told me that actually it, Franny is the name of her niece. And when her niece heard that Sal, Salvador was going to be in the story, she wanted to be in the story too. Oh. So um, then she she put Franny in um, as uh, part of the magic show, I think, if I remember correctly. I, I love it when people who are writing these very weird stories are at least in part very, very normal. Yeah, yeah. No, Dorothy's profound. Yeah. No, I was about to say she's profoundly normal. That's not true, because, but in a good way. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's cute when you realize these details. I have that a sneaking suspicion that um, maybe it's just her fashion sense, but Sanchoe seems in some ways very buttoned up. Yeah, I've never talked to her in person. I've only emailed her, which is a very enjoyable experience um, because as also as she writes in the third person, when she's writing about herself kind of 
in the preface of her book or, or oh, yes. in, in general. She also emails in the third person and is a lovely, lovely person to email. But uh, it, it's like there's, there's a, I think she's very much got a writer. She is the writer uh, when she's communicating, um, which is, yeah, it's very different to, to emailing Dorothy for sure. Huh. I think that the fact she's done, she does that, that she's, she's the writer, Sandra, Sandra, it just makes you wonder what's going on uh, behind yeah. the curtain. It's not our business, yeah, I wonder really. Too. Yeah, but no, and it's interesting because the, that, I guess I didn't explain the email that well because she will write to me as Xiaohua, but talk about Sanxue, the writer. Ah, ah, right, so right, so right. it's like we're two people who are collectively talking about this third person who is the writer, who is not in the conversation, who we're talking about. Uh, yeah. I think it, I'll try that at work next week. <laughs> Yeah, maybe more of us should be emailing like that. Yeah. Yeah. My job title is deputy editor, so I'll just refer to myself as the deputy. That's great. <laughs> yeah. See how quickly I can get fired. <laughs> um right. Oh yes. So you mentioned so the, the there's basically an allusion to Salvador Dali baked in. I'm a little embarrassed I didn't think of that. But it also feels quite appropriate. Again, I'm thinking of films. Have you seen Unxian Andalou, the Andalusian dog, the short film Dali made no. with uh, Louis Bunuel, surrealist filmmaker. Okay. It's, it's very short. It's like five minutes or something. And it's sort of just lots of, um, well, you know, they don't really seem to be connected little scenes. That's the one that has the famous eye being sliced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if I remember right, there's a lot of match cuts. So it has a sort of a flow yeah. um, and it never seems to stop. And I believe I read like, an essay that had some different interpretations of what the different symbols mean, mm -hmm. if anything. And one, there's one that I think is fairly famous. I think it possibly recurs a few times. There's ants. Um, the image is like ants coming out of a hole in someone's mm -hmm. hand. And I, I it was it was taught in a film studies uh, class I was in as an undergrad. And I think no one, like in the seminar or the teacher or the 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 assigned reading, had any explanation or analysis of the ants. And I was, I was like, I know what this, I, I had my own, it was like the one image in the film, I reckoned I knew what it was. I thought it was the man realizing that he doesn't really know who he is, that he's got either a, all these dark, weird, little unconscious thoughts running around inside him and like a hive mind rather than a unified mm -hmm. single self. Mm -hmm. Or the other, the B, similar idea is that you're just a biological system. Mm -hmm. not really mm -hmm. a, a spirit or a soul and mm -hmm. that's why it's so disturbing that's why it's freaky ants because you you, yeah. you know no one wants to face that really yeah. unless you want to totally ab abdicate your own responsibility yeah and i think yeah in things like dreams or when you're like for me anyway when i'm like half awake mm -hmm. and like my thoughts are just a jumbled nonsense yeah and then i don't know if i'm at the end of a day and i think about how i've gone about my day or sometimes when I'm listening back to myself on the podcast, it's like, Jesus, I'm just a machine that plods along and turns out roughly appropriate phrases to get me through the day. Um, yeah. And it does kind of feel that maybe that's what's, what's happened with the narrator. She's sort of just drifted through her life, can't remember it coherently. Yeah. It's all yeah. a fuzz. And, yeah, I think that's you know, right. we're all living in Dallyland. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know what I was, uh, as you're talking, I was thinking of like the visuals that I have to go with this story. And I was thinking that in some of Dorothy's stories, she actually writes about this membrane that kind of 
is sort of from this like is it people who are kind of trapped behind a membrane and looking through it to like see the other side of a river or something and I was thinking with this character then I think that um yes you're right she's kind of just going about her life and putting importance on whether or not she feeds her family canned food or whatever um or tin- I had to put canned food because it's for the American audience but I obviously originally yeah. had tinned food but um yeah then um yeah so she she's 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 got that kind of like robotic thing and then I think that I kind of see the story as quite segmented so that each time she pricks her finger or starts thinking about a new person, it's like she's punching through this membrane and like passing into like a new, maybe more profound part of her own kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say psyche, but her own life. Like she's getting, I don't know if she's getting closer to something, but it feels like she's definitely changing zone, I would say. Yeah, waking up a little bit more. I guess another problem of being being alive living inside your own body is you don't really have access to what other people are thinking it's all just an approximation and yeah tap the camera tap the mic there's always there's more and more and more filters um around us yeah um i don't know if i've got anything else very deep to say about the story um and then the next question is in the more silly miscellaneous section do you have anything you want to uh Anything that's gone unsaid you want to say before we? It's gone unsaid. Um, let me see if I made any notes. I think no, but I was I was thinking that I was I was quite excited to talk to you about this because I think I haven't already said, but that that, that actually very few people have read the story because it hasn't been um hasn't been published yet. So I mean, oh, yeah, I've yeah, read yeah. it. I've talked about it with Dorothy, and so there are I haven't had the chance to kind of like see somebody else react to it or, or like talk to someone in depth about their reactions to it. And I was thinking about how, yeah, probably the 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 vantage point from which you read this story will really affect what you think is going on at the core of it. Because I imagine that reading this, for example, in if it had existed in, in 2020, which I don't think it did, obviously, um, probably it would be much more striking as a sort of the quarantine part of it would be the really would be the bit that I think would be, um, yeah, would, would hit you the most. And I think when I read it, like I'm a woman in my mid thirties. So, and I feel like I work in a creative industry and I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is a bit like th- this one, these women are choosing between like a creative path and domesticity and the wombs. And like, this is all like, this feels like a very, uh, this, for me, this is sort of sitting quite squarely in the core of the story. And I guess you're reading it um, and thinking of like, daily routines and uh, like how how yeah how maybe unaware we are sometimes of the patterns that we get into in our life and I think that's something that's always really interesting um yeah when when we read stories and talk about them well, I don't have a womb so I can't say I yeah <laughs> experienced all of that but yeah some of that feels very real yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yes I think this is the first piece of any kind of lockdown literature I've read short mm-hmm. of maybe like a blog or something mm-hmm. um so yeah in in uh translated or any kind of literature i've not read a lockdown story lockdown story before and this is probably exactly the sort i would want something that gets a bit into how lockdown was a great um magical spell for distorting uh our minds our memories mm-hmm. time i've said before on the show that um i had a slightly sad but also very interesting thing i try to do where i would like just to kill time just try and really really re-simulate my memories of mm-hmm. often it was it was um things i got up to in, in china places i'd visited mm-hmm. on a, a day yeah. trip or something just trying to mentally go back there to see if 
it existed in my brain and I could put it back together. And um, yeah, you, you can't, not really. It's, it's like um, yeah. gas or water. It's, um, yeah. it's totally slippery. And that that's, that's in this story, I think. Yeah, you're right. I was thinking of, of two quite different things in response to that. And one is that actually my very sort of the way that I seem to react to being locked down was kind of extreme. Um, I don't know if it was like, so I was walking up and down the stairs and that was really just to remember that I had a body because otherwise we were just in the flat. But the other thing that I got really obsessed with, and I guess it, it does seem like being some in isolated, whether because you're in this story or because you're a lockdown, it does seem a kind of good uh, realm for obsessions to develop. And the thing that I got very into was quite literally the game memory. You know where you you just like when you're a kid, you have that game where you have to turn over cards two at a time and then you have to remember where the cards are. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, it, my my girlfriend got this version on her um, tablet. Um, so like an, it's like an electronic version of that game. And the advantage of it being an electronic version is that it's easier to, I guess, play it in competition with someone else, although actually you could do that with cards. But you can also make the cards increasingly difficult. Um, so at a certain point, we progressed from matching, I don't know, different animals to matching animals that were all penguins but had different outfits. And at a certain, I can't even, I can't believe that this was a thing that every day we would have lunch and do like half an hour of this game. Um, at a certain point, we changed it so that the cards were just shades of the color orange so then we were just matching different shades like mm. with a board of like 100 cards um and i actually as soon as the um the, the lockdown was over after five months i never felt any desire to play this game again um <laughs> and then a few months ago I, I saw the tablet and i thought oh i wonder like maybe i'll play a game of memory and it was impossible i could not do it it was just it was it, it was just an elite level of memory that I, I i do not have anymore i can't access it um which is probably a good thing um but yeah i wonder yeah what that says about the way my memory is functioning <laughs> but on a different note what i was thinking when you were talking about lockdown literature is that i do notice that more short stories are coming out now with this kind of premise, the starting point of what happens when we we have to change our lives in this way. And one that I actually hadn't considered being similar to this story, but I think in some ways is, is called um, My Mother's Bottomless Hole, and it's by Luke Danny Blue. And it's about this person who, um, to sort of yeah, during uh, the lockdown when everything is gone, goes remote, kind of travels back to stay with their mother um, who has installed this bottomless hole in her garden. Um, mm. And it, it's a really, I think, incredibly complex story about like the relationship between the child and the mother, the adult child and the mother, who is kind of a hoarder and has bought this extravagant hole and is just very excited about how she can just throw things in the hole and as much as she throws in, it will just vanish. Um, and this main character who is sort of deeply in denial about being trans and throughout this process of being removed from their job is sort of seems to be coming, I don't know if closer to a realization that they want to act on it, but um, yeah, I thought it was a really great story, but now I'm thinking of it in contrast to this one and thinking about how there are kind of similar themes of making choices that you can't take back and time moving on. Um, yeah, so I recommend that if you're looking for a quarantine another quarantine story that sounds exactly like something i'll read that's reminded me there's an amazing song called a bottomless hole really uh, oh, i should look that up too it's by the handsome family uh, okay they were the ones that did the theme tune for the first series of true detective that's how i found them okay 
me find this. See, I'll see if the song lyrics are short enough that I can um, uh, quote the bit that is just absolutely amazing. Uh, um, oh, I can read this. I'll, I'll skip the first two verses. So the guy finds out there's a... Oh, no, no. No, I shouldn't skip the start. The first line is amazing. Amazing. My name I don't remember, though I hail from Ohio. I had a wife and children, good tires on my car. What took me from my home and put me in the earth was the mouth of a deep, dark hole I found behind my barn. Uh, mm -hmm. Then he says they filled it with stuff. Um, mm. Nothing ever hit the ground. I went yeah. out behind the barn and stared down in that hole. Late into the evening, my mind would not let go. So I got out my ropes and a rusty clawfoot tub and I rigged myself a chariot to ride down in that hole. My wife, she did help me. She fed me down the ropes and then I sank away from the surface of this world. With the last rope pulled tight, I had not reached the end and in anger, I swung there down in that dark abyss. So I got out my knife. I told my wife goodbye. I cut loose from the ropes and fell on down that hole. And I am still wow. there falling down this evil pit. But until I hit the bottom, I won't believe it's bottomless. Yes. Well, I really, I wonder if this story was in the also Luke Danny Blue's mind when writing the short story, because although or maybe a bottomless hole just conjures similar questions when you think about it. But yeah, that that you should listen to that song and then read the story and the one, the bottomless hole story, and uh, it would be a great match, I think. Perfect. And that's allowed me to sneak in an extra uh, audio clip into this episode. Which... Oh, great. That's <laughs> Uh, right, so that, that sets us in good stead for miscellaneous questions. Uh, first yeah. one, it's a word of the day for the episode. Now, I don't know um, the Chinese word for vanish, but that seems like a strong candidate. Yeah, that would be a good word, you're right. Oh, there are so many words for vanish, Dorothy uses at least three synonyms. Um, right. So the word that I had thought of, which is not vanish, but mm. maybe we should use the word vanish, um, is... Like I mean, I don't know if it's the word of today, but I really, really like the Chinese adverb, which is like jing ji ji de, which is like quiet chicken chickenly, as a kind of way <laughs> to okay. yeah, which I I love for many reasons. I Dorothy taught it to me, so that's that's the connection to this story. Um, although I I don't think I've yet seen her use it in in a story, but the thing I really like about it is that it means to do something sneakily, um, and. It means to do something sneakily like a chicken, which in like is not a, an association that I think we have with chickens, right? Like in in like in English, then chickens are always really wimpy. Um, so if you some, do something like a chicken, then you probably do it in a really cowardly way. Um, so I first of all really enjoy the fact that this adverb forces you to think of chickens differently, which I think in a kind of micro this is a micro version of what lots of translated literature does. Um, but also, um, yeah, it makes me yeah rethink chickens. Because if you imagine a chicken walking, it actually does look pretty sneaky because the way that it sort of like moves its head and its legs is kind of like a detective. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I like it for those reasons. But I also think this idea of things happening in a stealthy or sneaky or, or creepy way is sort of, yeah, it's what's happening in this story with all these pieces of information that are kind of being sneaked in as the narrator sort of like moves through the membranes and um yeah uh so that that's so it's an expression i like yeah very light-footed and very very yeah. strange that's very yeah, and true about kind of startled and flighty I, there's just so many mm. yeah the story is like a chicken uh <laughs> creeping around a field um 
Yeah. Again, it's very hard. I imagine I've never tried to catch a chicken, but whenever you see videos of people trying to catch chickens, it seems like it's very difficult to to, to sort of like get hold of them, right? And that's a bit what the story is doing. Like it, it's right there, you can see it, um, but it, it's it's just a little bit out of out of grasp. My mom had some rescued battery hens for a while, and the secret to catching a chicken is mm-hmm. befriend the chicken uh, ah. first. Um, well, that's it's... interesting. I wonder if that means that we should kind of try to think of this narrator as our friend, and then we will be able to understand more um, what's happening. But how do you befriend a chicken? Uh, feed it. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it works on a lot of animals. That yeah. yeah, I think feed it and don't don't frighten it, and maybe. My mom, there's an amazing photo of my mom sat out in the back garden in a like a sun chair, uh, just holding a chicken as if it were like a cat. Really? Or a football. Wow. That's a wonderful one. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yes. She's and did the chicken, so the chicken would just sit in her lap and let her stroke it? That particular chicken would. Um, oh. Maybe a couple of the other ones wouldn't. That sounds delightful. Pretty delightful. Yeah. Um. So we, we, we had one song I've already... Um, played, although we haven't heard it, but one song has been edited into this episode already. Uh, we've got a chance to add a couple more. So if you could set uh, quarantine to music, uh, what music would it be? Do you have Do you have anything in mind? Yes, um, actually. Um, and it's funny because quite often when I'm translating, then when I'm in a kind of a break from translating, then I will listen to, uh, yeah, I'll go on YouTube and listen to a song. And so and normally what happens is that I get really, really obsessed with one song for several weeks. Um, and often it's not a song that I would play if I were just in my house cooking or, or in some other context and I'd listen to music. And often the song isn't actually very appropriate for the story I'm working on. It's just that I need a particular vibe to kind of let me step away from it for a minute. But I was thinking, and actually as soon as you mentioned that songs were going to come up in this uh, conversation, then I thought of the song... Um, uh, More Like You by Olga Gartland. Look, I don't want to fight. No, I just want to swap our bodies for a day. Imagine I could drive. The talk down back and forth across LA. Every time she mentions your name, or she says it like a prayer. Get a call up in the syllables. I wish I didn't care. No. which is this song, and I have noted down some of the lyrics because it's basically a song about being obsessed with copying a friend or perhaps having an intense crush on someone who seems like they might be a friend, which could also be what's happening in the story. I haven't gone down that particular route of interpretation, but I think the intensity of the narrator's um, fixation on the friend and the neighbor could be more than simply wanting to be their friend. Um, And there is an amazing video for this song in which um, the singer Olga is sort of dancing with this, uh, I think, dancer called Hannah Hornsby. And they're doing this kind of, just two of them in a room, kind of, and one of them, I I think is Olga, the the singer, is sort of like shadowing the other and and really trying to kind of like copy her, but also in some way it seems like impede her. And that felt very similar to the dynamic actually that's happening at the centre of this story where the narrator, I think, really wants to be her neighbor or I don't know 
um, kind of consume her neighbor and have her neighbor's life. And the lyrics that I thought would be interesting um, are, okay, look, I don't want to fight. I just want to swap bodies for the day, which is indeed, I think, what's happening. I mean, literally, she she offers the neighbor the chance to swap bodies for the day and then they, they you know, the neighbor comes to be with her child. So that's what happens. Um, and yeah, another, yeah, I've been trying to copy every word you say. Um, I love the way you think. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's got me by the throat that I've been obsessing in the worst way. So yeah, I think that it captures the obsession that's happening, that's happening here. Perfect. I actually picked something kind of similar. So when I was preparing for this this episode, I knew the track I wanted to pick would be something from uh, the Imogen Heap album, Speak for Yourself, because the whole thing is quite mm-hmm. highly strung and very strange, but um, yeah. kind of and, and very um, vulnerable and personal. Yeah. And it's just great to yeah. listen to. And yeah, I knew there was something I wasn't quite thinking. There was a perfect track. I couldn't think what it was. So when we when I hit record, I'd written down the first track on the album, Headlock, because it's maybe my favorite mm-hmm. one. But I knew it wasn't quite right. And it occurred to me when you said you picked a song about someone fessing up to being obsessed with someone else. Yeah. There is a, there is a perfect track on this album, which is basically well, not basically. It's very similar. I was going to say basically the same. That's not quite right. I think it's essentially it's the narration of a rather stressed, stressed out woman, assuming it's Imogen Heap narrating as herself, who's um, got mm-hmm. a big crush on someone that she's she's just friends with. She's kind of in a, yep. in a friend zone type situation. kind of seems sweet almost like a love song and then verse three she she just casually says i'm following you home and then proceeds (laughs) to describe like follow you home you've got your headphones on and you're dancing and it's very it's like beautiful music um she sounds seemingly at ease very happy but she's like Mm -hmm. describing this guy like um well yeah taking off all his clothes and getting in the shower or something oh (laughs) it's incredibly creepy yeah but i think maybe what we're both getting at is that actually i do think there's there's that there is that thread in this story like i do think that it's not i mean any kind of obsession is more than simple friendship because friendship is not obsession so yeah Mm. that there is a that layer that i think uh stands out because i mean she's alone and she's thinking so intensely about these two women um yeah that song sounds great i'm gonna listen to it after yeah but the the whole album is is a great listen yeah, I haven't listened to Imogen Heap for a long time. I was a, went through a phase, yeah, I guess around 20, like early, to, mid-2000s maybe when I think she was, was that when she was at her peak? I'm not sure, but I um, did go through an Imogen Heap phase and yeah, she's good. I know it's the bit on um, a track from that album that was an opening theme tune for, was it the, I never watched it, I think the OC or one of some American mm, drama. Right, and then it really took off, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was a mm, what you say. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah which is exactly. a meme now. So like a, <laughs> it was a used on vines, I think that one. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. That's 
I think that is why I looked her up, but I was already, I was even late for the meme. That's how late I was to Imogen Heap. I think singer, songwriter, the sort of just after the millennium seemed to be a good time for singer, songwriters. Yeah. 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 Not that I know really know much about that, but yeah, there yeah. do seem to be some good albums um, from that time in that neck of the woods. Anyway, um, the next question is the bonus question for Patreon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I am going to nick this this question from other podcasts I've listened to because mm-hmm. uh, I hadn't thought I'd forgot to write this one down um, come interview time. And but was... it has to be good, my answer, right? Because this is for the Patreon members. So um, I better if... have something interesting to tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, to be honest, the, the quality of these often varies and so does the length. But um, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just see. So he, here it is. Um, if you could... Um, if if you're a god and you can you can uh, pick up Dorothy Tay mm-hmm. and put her in a room with one or if you prefer more other writers from any place any time in history uh, they can speak any language of course who are you going to pop her down next to? That is a really really good question. Um, okay, I'm going to take some time because I think this through. Um, or we could make it quarantine themed. You can put her in a Zoom call with <laughs> Excellent. Right. I will actually close off the Patreon episode there. Take us to the final questions. And again, this has been a relatively short one. So feel free to, to go on a tangent if you wish. Yeah. Um if our listeners want more like this story, more more quarantine esque stories, where would you direct them? And do feel free to advertise your other translations of her work if you wish. Um, sure, thank you. So I, I guess not everyone will have heard what I just said, which is the um, that Dorothy has written this story as part of a fairy tale, loosely fairy tale reinterpreted collection. And so there are two that have already been published. One is called Sour Meat. And that's in a collection called That We May Live, which I think is all, I think the theme of that collection is speculative fiction translated from Chinese. So Mm. um, I wouldn't say that all the stories in it are similar to Dorothy, but there's a few by Yanga or one by Yanga, I think, which uh, I think is interesting. Um, And yeah, that that story is is, uh, loosely connected to Red Riding Hood and Kombucha. And... um, I think, uh, yeah, also the, the the book Owlish that we've kind of mentioned every so often throughout this episode is her novel, it's her first novel. Um, and yeah, I really, really, really love it. I think it's um, it's about, maybe I should say what it's about and then I'll say why I love it, but it's um, about this literature professor in a city that is clearly Hong Kong um, who uh, has a very, he's not very happy with his life. He's 50, he's struggling to get promoted um his wife is very controlling um and he has this obsession with collecting dolls and yeah that the sort of beginning of the pre- the point we begin the novel he's just falling in love with this massive well life-size ballerina doll um and so throughout the story he he's sort of increasingly obsessed with her and spends all of his time with her on this sort of outlying island uh from from the sort of main hong kong islands and essentially becomes I think the story is really about how he becomes so obsessed with her that he fails to sort of notice 
most other things that are happening around him. And what's happening around him is that students are vanishing from his class. And there's this sort of protest movement that keeps sort of swelling in the story, especially towards the end. And yeah, I think it's a really, I just, yeah, I just like it a lot. <laughs> it has this this plot with, with the professor and at a certain point you almost worry, is this just going to be a, an adultery story? Is that what I'm reading here? And then when you start to notice all the clues of um, what's happening around him and I think what the narrative is, is almost forcing you to, um, yeah, for a while, you are basically being the professor, like you're blinded by his love affair and you're not seeing things. And I think the, the novel is really trying to make you feel what it's like not to see and force you by the end to really try to reckon with your own sort of blind spots and apathy when it comes to these kind of situations. But it's also very funny. And maybe that's a bit what I was um, bringing up earlier about how I think her her very short stories are incredibly um, rich and intense and you feel like you're all tangled up and looking at this intricate embroidery but then when she's writing in this more long form like she started to do in quarantine and obviously like she's doing in the novel um, it feels like she just has all this space to flex so you get the same kind of like incredibly precise language but it's just sort of stretched out and I feel like it really carries you along uh, in this sort of very pleasant way and also there's a lot more room for humor so i think in aulish there's also a lot of very funny um moments right yeah i i'm gonna slip in an extra question here because i this is if we're not counting uh wuxia authors then mm -hmm. this is like the first hong kong author that i've ever mm -hmm. covered on yeah. the show um definitely the first like very modern hong kong author yeah is doris he'd say best understood or well understood as being like a Hong Kong writer or a representative of the scene there or is she just sort of her own um, I think singularity mean, if you mean do you mean like do people in Hong Kong um kind of like appreciate her as much as uh, as we do um yeah that's one perfectly good way of spinning the question <laughs> um yeah I I think she's um yeah I think people in Hong Kong um know and respect her and she's won she's won quite a lot of prizes in hong kong i'm trying to think what the most recent one is but i think one is the hong kong prize for literature so yeah she's she's well known in hong kong um she was pretty um i guess there's you've probably heard of sai sai or shishi who wrote uh like a lot of poetry and shishi is this a uh, hong kong uh, poet and uh, a fiction writer who um recently died I, I think in her in her 80s but she's been really really influential on sort of I think Dorothy's generation of, of Hong Kong writers and I think um yeah Dorothy knew her and I'm sort of part of that um group I suppose um and I know that she would also cite her as an as an influence in her writing um yeah right gotcha um I'll ask this one to myself as well where would I send people who want who who in future, once the story is published, read it and want to read more like it or like the description, want more like it. And I'm I'm just going to go for a somewhat similar but also very different Robert Aikman's short story. Mm -hmm. It's got such a cool name uh, for, for me anyway. It's called No Time Is Passing. Okay. And it's, it's a very odd, even among his stories, it's odd because it has like a sort of a more explicit fantasy sort of element a guy moves into a new house or he has been in a new house for a little while happens to be there on his own because his wife is working she has a job at the post office and is delayed 
And he happens to notice that there's a stream at the bottom of his garden through a gate that he'd never noticed before. And he happens to notice that in the stream, there's a boat and everything is a little strange. Everything is a bit off. He happens to ride the boat and is just sort of going along passively with the current. And on the other side of the water, he's in some sort of strange dreamlike fantasy world. He meets some kind of some kind of weird creature man thing from Greek mythology who sort of puts him under a spell and um, is very like rude and abrasive to him mm-hmm. and seems like he's taunting him and our, our hero goes into sort of a dream state on like a sofa or something a couch yeah and yeah. these um angel figures like pass by him and he's like you can only sort of see them out of the corner of his eye it's very cunningly described and wow. they i think they they show him like cups of water and through them he sees things that may or may not be real yeah that hint at like maybe his wife is cheating on him mm-hmm, all these mm-hmm. things that he's blind to because he has a very english yes. blustery upbeat attitude towards life he's like ah, yeah. everything's fine and yeah. this demon thing seems to be intent on showing him that it's just not fine no it's fine no it's not mate you're an idiot uh, everything's not fine yes. and when he gets back his house has been ransacked it seems like a bunch of um dirty hippies have ransacked yeah. the house and robert aikman was a raging reactionary so i think some of the author's fears of yeah. where post-war britain is, is going in there are, are in there as well so like it's a weird story it sort of deals with uh, a dreamlike yeah. state where there's hints that all's not as it seems um yeah, that's and great. yeah there's a sort of a fairy tale angle as well oh yeah i also should name some people who aren't dorothy to point to <laughs> in connection which um i would say um that uh actually i read uh mr fox by helen oyayemi uh just before i read owlish and i was really struck by how um they have a remarkably i think that their their mind works in interesting ways so um yeah mr fox by helen is, is about this um man who is haunted by a kind of head that appears in his house and sort of starts giving him uh oh what does it i Maybe I will have to double check my facts here, but basically it's, it's, it's haunted by a kind of like a specter of a woman. Um, and there are a lot of parallels to how the professor behaves in Dorothy's novel. Enough, not enough for it to be the same novel, but I just felt like they really are siblings in terms of uh, dealing with this particular psyche. Um, and I also think Camilla Grudova has written some short stories which share a similar sort of desire to um, explore the domesticity inside weirdness or maybe the weirdness inside domesticity I don't know which is a, is a kind of tension that I I like a lot um and I should also say that um there are some uh, quite a few translations from Hong Kong coming out next year I think that I think everyone should look out for and I think one is Morning for a Breast by Shi Shi who I mentioned earlier translated by Jennifer Feely um, and I think also My City, translated by Jennifer Feely uh, and written by Shishi. So that's a kind of double uh, um, release that I'm really looking forward to both of those. So, yeah, watch out for. My, my final question is, what are you reading just now? I'm going to skip answering this one because the episode that came before this one, uh, listeners, full disclosure, I recorded that the day before this one. I've not read <laughs> anything since then. I've just been playing games on my phone. So can't say it. I've been only thing I've been reading was a eleven thousand word document on a 
class for trainee pharmacists. So I don't think that's really worth talking about. Is that what you edit? That's just the day job. Uh, yeah. I edit tax documents for my day job. So it sounds like we might be on a similar um, vein. Yeah. Does that involve maths or is it just... No, uh, literally uh, just people writing the rules of tax in um, long form, very long form, <laughs> thousands <laughs> of words about tax, which I don't know anything about. Well, I know more about it now, but um, it's not It's not that I have a specialty in that. Or Do you yeah. have a specialty in pharmaceutical? Um... Uh, my dad was a doctor. Um, okay. I did did biology up to the end of high school and then okay. didn't touch it for 10 years. And the last the job before this one, it was on a pharma industry trade mag. So mm-hmm. that was that is that knowledge accumulated there is sort of helping also sort of uh, sort of irrelevant as well. But yeah, um yeah, I was just gonna say thank you for someone someone's gotta proofread the tax documents. So thank you for serving the people by doing so. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your thanks. That makes me feel <laughs> appreciated. Um, but yeah. Um, but in terms of what I'm reading when I'm not reading mm. tax documents, then, um, well, I actually at the moment I'm reading in a kind of frenzy because I am reading books for the National Translation Award, which means I probably can't pick any of those titles to say that's what I'm reading. But oh, in yes. between speed reading or, 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 you know, not speed reading, but reading a lot of books for that, then I have been reading um, Elsewhere, which is the collection of short stories by Yang Ge, who I know you've talked about before in this podcast. Um, and this is the collection that she wrote in English um, and that oh, I yeah. think is coming out later in the year. Um, and I think everyone should pre-order it and be very excited for it because it's just it's just great. It just feels like her. Like it's just the stories are really, I think she's incredibly good at constructing a plot. She's really, really funny but has this amazing ability to just, I don't know, in, in very kind of spare dialogue, completely devastate you when she wants to. So there's just stories where you feel like the writer is really in control of you and is going to make you feel exactly how she wants to make you feel. And you just can kind of, in a way that's very relaxing, you just kind of give in and think, okay, I'm in this story and it's going to carry me where it wants. Um, yeah, it's great. Yes, this is a very pro younger uh, podcast. Yes, I yeah, yeah, I'm a pro younger person. <laughs> we can... <laughs> Yeah, cheers to that. The first episode I did on our on um, chili bean paste mm-hmm. clan. That's one where, although it was so long ago, I still remember the lines I quoted to put at the top of the show notes. It was, "Ayah, stop going on at me," and then response, "If I don't, who will?" <laughs> yeah, she's really, really, really good at dialogue. Just really incredibly good at dialogue. I think that um, yeah, she's just. Yeah, I mean, she's very good at writing everything else that goes around the dialogue too, but I really enjoy the conversations that her characters have. Oh, yeah. Um, which is what any podcast fan should be looking for, I that's suppose. True. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I'll, I'll close it off then. Um, we, we, could, we could have a meta conversation about podcasts on the podcast, but um, not on my watch. Um, okay. I'll just say thank you very much for coming on the show. Fantastic to have had um, not only a translator but a listener on. That's re- that's really cool. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And we've come to the end of the show. Not much left for me to say now, except of course the plugs. I'll jump right in with the Patreon. If you want to help support the show, help cover the hosting costs then you can from just one, I believe it's one G, 
one British pound or perhaps one dollar. I'm, I'm, I mean, they're basically worth the same these days. Anyway, from that minimum price, you can become a supporter and that will get you access to well over a hundred bonus episodes. They are mostly me. In fact, all bar like one. Oh no, that's not true. Most of them are either me talking solo about a piece of Chinese lit I've read or they're a bonus question that I've snipped out of an episode. They come out as it stands. I produce, produce, publish, post, whatever, whichever word beginning with P you like. One goes online every two weeks. I've been able to keep that up for quite a while. Episodes are queued all the way to the end of May as it stands right now. I'm hoping I can get a bunch more um, sort of mini reviews of books I've read recently up and on there, but it's all time dependent. I want to I just adopted a dog a few days ago, and uh, that sort of uh, is the thing that that a lot of spare time goes into right now, that and producing the main episodes. I put in a lot of work for this goddamn show, even though the episodes don't come out that rapidly. I guess that's that's life. But yeah, <laughs> I realise I'm really waffling here, so I should get to the next uh, the next plugs. The show's social media. Um, we have a Discord. Admittedly, it's very quiet. But if you want to be on the show Discord, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to follow me, just me, um, representing the show, on Twitter, I'm at Angus Likes Words. The show has its own Instagram. It's at Churchific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. That's pretty much all the social media. Um, since I'm feeling talkative, I'll plug another thing. If you've got friends who are behind the Great Firewall uh, and want to listen but don't really have easy access to a VPN... I do have a link. I realize this isn't something I should maybe talk about too much online. You never know who's listening. But um, there is a link on the show homepage that takes you to a uh, cloud service that is not blocked in China, where the episodes are all stored, sort of like a little archive. So that's a place to get the show from behind the firewall, if if that is what you wish. Please, internet sensors, don't block the hosting service I'm referring to. Uh, please don't do that. Yeah. Okay. So we've done we've done the Patreon. We've done social media. We've done the secret stash of censor-proofed files. I think not much else to say now, except the best thing that you can do for the show, which is to spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell the dog that you recently adopted, and tell your neighbor. You know, the one whose life you want to steal. That neighbor. Until you tune in again. Zaijian. <laughs>